Not going to hide like a lamp shining in a dark place. Not going to stop like a seed planted at the ground, plenty of water and sun. Going to astound you like a seed bringing forth a flower. The kingdom of God in Jesus Christ proclaiming himself as the one who can do this to cast Satan himself out of his reigning throne, prince of this age of darkness. Since we last left Jesus on this quest, he had taken care of a virtual army of demons, a legion of demons, and thrown them into the abyss, the Sea of Galilee, in some pigs, but the Sea of Galilee being, for the minds of the people who lived in that day, a picture of the abyss, of the final depths of Hades and hell and the realm into which the demons do belong and eventually go. Jesus puts them there after also demonstrating that that same abyss, he can silence with the word if he feels like it when he calmed the storm over the same sea right before he did this whole thing with the pigs. After this, a few more things happened at our midweek service this week. We heard about how Jesus sent out, um, excuse me, we heard about how Jesus healed a woman with a 12-year-long blood hemorrhage from inside of her. I don't know if you can imagine going to doctors for 12 years and spending everything that you have to stop internal bleeding that's also external bleeding and having nothing to come of it. And then again, Jesus heals this woman, wait for it though, on accident. Like he doesn't mean to. She just touches his cloak and gets healed. He did that, and then right after that, he stepped it up another level because there's this 12-year-old girl who's dead, and he tells her to wake up, and she does. She gets up. So these marvelous things continue to happen around Jesus, things that include the stopping of uncleanness because that woman was unclean because of her blood, and they include things like the raising of people from the dead. This is his mission. This is his quest. This is what he's about. But in his hometown, Nazareth, they don't like him. Even his family is named James and Judas and Joseph, his his brothers and his sisters who do not believe in him. He doesn't care. He takes those 12 who he named apostles. And right before our reading today, this would be on page 841 of your pew Bible, Mark 6, verse 7, he calls the 12 to him again, and he sends them out two by two, and he once more empowers them specifically. He gives them charge over unclean spirits. If you can see that there in your text, notice it doesn't say to heal. When he sent them out the first time, he said, preach, heal, cast out. This time, he says, cast out. And he sends them again to cast out. So they go immediately in verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and they did heal them. They healed them. So Jesus looks like he's going to win up to this point. All conflict that's come his way has seemed to be something he can just kind of dismiss and cast to the side. Perhaps you can imagine that martial artist who's sitting there dodging the bullets. He's so capable of doing the masterful thing. That's how Jesus is handling everyone who comes at him. 
And he sends out 12 more guys who are also beginning to do that. And then, and then uh, Elijah, John the Baptist, gets murdered by a capricious young girl who's playing the harlot for her mother, who truly is a harlot. The forerunner who had prepared the way for this massive onslaught against the devil's legions. The man who stood before Christ as the image of him who was to come. Doesn't succeed. Dies early. Brutally. Betrayed. Doesn't rise from the dead. Notice Herod thinks he's going to rise from the dead though. That's how our text starts, right? Uh, King Herod heard of it. This is Jesus' fame. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. There's a couple of main points I want you to pull from our story today. And, and, and one of them is this. That the point of the story of the death of John the Baptist is the resurrection of Jesus. The point of the story of the death of John the Baptist is the crucifixion of Jesus. That becomes the resurrection of Jesus. John the Baptist came as a forerunner. He's a picture of Jesus before Jesus. And what is the main picture he gives you? Dead early, brutally murdered, betrayed. That's the picture of who the Christ was actually going to be. That is what Jesus is going to have happen to him. And Mark set the whole thing up for you. By also pointing out that the end of it is Jesus will actually rise from the dead. Like Herod's right, just with the wrong guy. Yeah. And driven by guilt and a little bit insane. And we'll, we'll come to that in a moment here. Um, first, I want to I just kind of cover the wholeness of what happens next. There's some text that we will not see this morning. And, and that text that happens next again is the feeding of the 5,000. So after the forerunner dies, the one who is actually to come, not worried about it. He does one better than Moses. Moses says, I can't carry all these people. Jesus says, uh, I got food. What do you got? Five, five loaves? Good enough. Let's do it. And uh, following that, uh, there's another bit that happens. He goes back out on the water. He goes back out on that same ocean, that abyss where the pigs had been sent, where he'd stilled the storm. Uh, only he goes out alone. His disciples are in a boat, uh, but he's just, you know, going for a walk on the waves, in, in a storm. I mean, they're, they're three foot, five foot, I don't know, surfing. I don't know. How do you walk on a three foot wave? Jesus is out walking at night. Uh, why? Well, to demonstrate again. So the chaos, the chaos killed John. But guess what? Jesus ain't worried. Jesus walks on chaos. He's got all under complete control. Uh, and then the end of our text for this morning uh, what happens? The, he gets into the boat with the apostles. Uh, the storm is stilled. These are the guys who cast out demons, remember? These are the guys who healed diseases, remember? And it says they did not understand that he was the son of God. Their hearts were hardened. So again, it ought to be success, but look, it's a cross. It ought to be winning everywhere, but look, no one understands. Who is this king of glory? Right? What is he here to do? So let's dig into the, the actual story of John the Baptist's death again, uh, back at verse 14, top of page 841, if you want to be there. Uh, King Herod heard of it. This is Jesus' fame, for Jesus' name had become known. Remember, these crowds are just huge, huge, even for our day's standards, right? You know, Friday night downtown uh, in the summer, they get the, the fest going on with the beer and the music and the, uh, the cheeses and things. It's a great time. Lots of people, at least that big. 
just wherever Jesus is right now. Right? He's that popular. And uh, so some are trying to figure out who this guy is. This will come back in a couple chapters. Jesus is going to turn to his disciples and say, who do people, who do men say that I am? And these same three answers are going to be given there. Uh, that also happens in Matthew. But Matthew doesn't have this part where it just kind of comes early, I think. So uh, you have these people trying to figure out Jesus. He's famous. And these are people who are talking to Herod. Uh, some are saying uh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Now, if you've never read the Gospel of Mark before or never read any of the Gospels before, you don't know that John the Baptist is dead at this point in the story. That's the first key you get. He's dead. So oh, wait a minute. What happened there? Right. Well, don't worry too much about it. Um, it's his resurrection that would give these miraculous powers to him, right? How is this guy, Jesus, able to do these miracles? Well, some are saying Herod killed John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was a prophet and he's back. Others say he is Elijah. And this is probably the most common thing that was being said. And this is one of the most looked for things that there was. Because before the time of silence, the 500 years where no prophet came to Judah and they sat and waited while Greeks and Romans alike trampled over the holy spaces. Uh, while they were waiting all of that time, uh, there was no prophecy. There was no one to speak, but there was a promise that a messenger would come right before the Christ and he would be Elijah. And so in that 500 years, the idea of who Elijah is was a lot of what they talked about. They got very, very focused on who this guy was. For our purposes this morning, it is a prophecy that the one who would be the forerunner of the Christ would look like, act like, talk like Elijah of old. That means dressed in hairy garments, eating locusts in the wilderness, uh, not really listening to the powers that be. Remember, who, who tried to kill Elijah? Was it just the king or was it the king's wicked wife, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like a big, big parallel there, right, to John the Baptist. But the people are looking for this Elijah. They, they want to believe that the kingdom is going to come. Who is he going to be? Some think, oh, it wasn't John the Baptist. It's this Jesus guy. That's Elijah. Here he is. And then others say he's like one of the prophets. He's just a new prophet. He's Isaiah. He's Ezekiel. He's Daniel. All of these things. But Herod, <laughs> when Herod heard of it, Verse uh, 16, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He's just completely convinced. Now, there's amazing things going on. That means, that means Herod believes God can raise his prophets from the dead. And yet he doesn't go out and ask Jesus to forgive him or to teach him or to follow him. What a strange kind of unbelief this is. Where you can acknowledge the power of God and yet you cannot turn to him. And yet this is the demonic's problem. They know God's there. They don't not believe in God existing. They just actually believe very firmly God hates them and, and they're right. And so thinking of God bothers them, right? Well, Herod's kind of doing that a little bit here. And we're going to get more of this. Herod's double-mindedness. Uh, don't turn there right now, but Psalm 119, verse 113 says, and this is David, he says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I hate the double-minded. How can a Christian like David, praying in Jesus' name, Jesus himself say he hates the double-minded? Well, this isn't about a personal vendetta against somebody's soul. This is about a way of being. And Herod is this way of being. He's a double-minded man. 
And you're going to see then as a result, he is a pawn of everything around him, most especially the darkness. He is an epitome, a fool at the end. So that idea of hating the double-minded, that's going to come out. And uh, if we have time, we're going to also tease with another story about another double-minded king uh, in just a moment. But let's just go back to Herod, the double-minded man, right? So uh, it was Herod, verse 17, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So, so the whole thing is kind of a political ploy. But if you can imagine a certain news station uh, reporting that a, a certain power is doing things that it shouldn't be doing, that power might do everything in its power to silence that news station. I know it's hard to imagine, right? But maybe not. Maybe it's just the way things always are. Because that's what he does. He silences the prophet in the wilderness by just bringing him in close and putting him in prison. Yeah. And what's he saying that that he isn't supposed to be saying that Herodias is so upset about? Well, she has done something that is effectively an abomination in Israel. It's not just about divorce. It's about divorce in order to marry your husband's brother. Right. Like that's I think even now, like in say maybe an LBGTQ community, if you cheat on somebody with their best friend, everyone gets mad, right? Like it's, it's kind of normal for this to be the way that we act as we want to hide also uh, the, the desires of our flesh that lead us. And so here she is doing this and here he is following along and yet he's not really in it. Like, Herod wants to be with this woman he's married. He's certainly after her, and he apparently has a fancy for her daughter, too, which you might understand to be disgusting, right? Please see, that's disgusting. And, and yet, uh, he, he doesn't really have a problem with John, right? So it says, verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death, but she could not because, verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man knowing that he was righteous and holy. Like, he knows, he knows John's right. Again, he's got this, like, almost understanding thing, and yet he's two-minded. He won't ever soften his hard heart and let the understanding lead him. Rather, he lets it kind of terrify him. Yeah? Uh, so he keeps John safe. Uh, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. And what does that even look like? It's kind of weird. And that's why I want to talk about this other king. Zedekiah was the last king of Jerusalem before it fell. And he was there as Jeremiah is preaching that their alliance with Egypt is going to fail and Babylon's going to destroy them all. At one point, Jeremiah writes his prophecies about this down and sends it in a book via the hand of his servant Baruch to Zedekiah that he might hear it and have it read. At the time, uh, Jeremiah's in hiding, and at times he's being thrown in things like pits. He's constantly being uh, mistreated within Jerusalem, but he continues to preach and proclaim. And again, he writes it down, and he sends it in a letter to the king, who he can't seem to get to at the moment. One of my favorite moments in the whole story. So the king is sitting in his, his room, and I imagine it like a fantasy castle tower. It wouldn't have been like that, but, you know, he got... Picture a king seated by his fire, however that comes in your head, right? 
and he's got his counselors around. And one of those counselors has this big, dirty looking scroll that, that he's reading. Okay. And he's reading the scroll one line at a time. And after every line that's read, the king takes the scroll, takes his knife, cuts off that line, gives the scroll back, and puts that line into the fire. And he listens to the whole thing that way, one line at a time, cut off and burned. Zedekiah rejects directly everything that Jesus Christ says to him in this ridiculous display of error against an evil. And yet later, when the armies of Babylon have surrounded Jerusalem, and uh, the threat looks real. He's having defectors. Egypt is not going to be a help at all. Jeremiah is indeed kept in prison, isolated from everyone, unable even to escape the city, as he's been preaching that all the believers should do. He said, believers, leave. Now you'll live. You stay, you're dead. He's stuck there in the midst of all of this. And guess who comes walking into his dirty cell? Nothing but King Zedekiah. And King Zedekiah is terrified. He says, is there a word for me from the Lord? <laughs> and Jeremiah is like, yep, you're going to get destroyed. It's longer and more poetic than that, but that's it. You're going to get destroyed. And Zedekiah basically says, thank you, but don't tell anybody else, okay? And he leaves. He doesn't change any of his behavior, even though there is some warning that he could change, but he doesn't change any of his behavior. He goes and continues to do the same thing. He ends up uh, led away to watch all of his sons killed before his eyes. His eyes then are gouged out, and then he rots in a prison in Babylon until he dies for quite 30 years, 40 years, with nothing but that memory in the darkness. King Zedekiah, the double-minded man, he went to Jeremiah. He knew where the word of God was. He listened to it. He said, thank you. He walked away and just ignored it. Double-minded man. I hate the double-minded. Why would you hate the double-minded? That you might not be one. That when you see it in yourself, you repent of it. Christian sanctification is not about never failing or never sinning. It's about when you do, you just don't like it. You want it to end. You want it to stop. You want to grow. You want to be single-minded with the mind of Christ, with the word of God. Yes? Not Herod, though. Yeah. He listens to John, but he just kind of keeps him there. And then verse 21, back in uh, Mark 6, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. You know, Herod's position as a ruler is he's a, called a tetrarch. Uh, he's, I don't know, you could think of him like a county king. If we had county kings, he's like a county king. Uh, and so he's got a lot of people. He's got the sheriff. He's got the mayor. You know, there, there's people that matter. These aren't the big ones, but they're big enough. And he's throwing a little shindig downtown at the at the microbrew in a special room for everybody to come and, and check it out. And in comes, in comes not his daughter, um, his, his daughter-in-law. Uh, verse 22, Herodias' daughter came in and danced she pleased Herod and his guests. Uh, John's very sparse there. It doesn't say that this was licentious or sexual at all, although I, I don't know. Maybe you've got an imagination where you can see it differently, but that really fits with what's going on. And so he's so pleased with this that everybody is just stunned by her beauty, which is fine. Beauty is good, if fleeting and vain. Uh, the king says to her as a reward, and you can imagine maybe the, the wine is talking a little bit here too. Ask me for whatever you wish. 
and I will give it to you. He vows, whatever you ask, I will give up to half my kingdom. Legal jargon. Half my kingdom. It's legal talk. It's not just a phrase. He's not just boasting. What he means is, um, is you, you can ask me for anything you want that I can give, and I will give it. If it is in my power to do it, it will be done. That, that's what that means, half my kingdom. It, you can't split the kingdom in half. It doesn't work. Caesar would have to approve it. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. But he's saying, shoot for the stars, girl. Now, what, what is your pleasure? Now, who is this girl who, who doesn't even know, like, really, a pony? I mean, like, like, whatever you've dreamed of your whole life, she doesn't even know. How much is she wrapped around her mother's finger? This is a strange thing, this girl. Uh, when she goes out, she says to her mother, what should I ask for? Maybe it was wise. Maybe she knew she'd get a pony, but that would grow old. And she wanted something that would be valuable and she could pass on as a legacy, right? She, she wanted an endowment or something. I don't know. Uh, she asks, what should I do? And her mother doesn't waste any time, doesn't ask for anything of value. Think of what could be. You just divorced a man to marry the king so that your daughter could be in his house. And now he's going to give her what? Lands? Titles, all sorts of stuff. And uh, no, 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 no. Just, just shut that guy up. Kill him. And not, not any kind of death. It could have been kill him. It could have been stab him. It could have been hang him. I want his head. The head of John the Baptist. The girl comes in immediately with haste. Notice she's excited. She's excited about this. This is a good idea. Uh, she says, I want to... I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist, and then she adds some spice. Give me, a, give me it on a plate. This girl is just like her mother, right? Uh, she is a capricious and wicked child, an image of the folly that always grows in a house where there is no word from God. The king's not excited about this. He's double-minded again here, yeah. Uh, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Right? Oaths are a pretty big deal, yeah? especially legal oaths, like the one he kind of just did make. Uh, with that said, notice his strange sense of virtue. Doesn't want to break his word. I'm a man of my word. I won't break it. Right? Even if the word was, I'm going to do evil, you idiot. Break your word. Repent. Say that you were wrong. It hurts, but that way you don't do more stupid stuff, like kill the guy who was a little bit of hope in your life, which is what he does. Immediately, the executioner's king, the king's executioner goes with orders to bring John's head. He beheads him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, does that sound like a different story? When the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. How did this story start? John has been raised from the dead. Right? Mark is showing us where everything's going. We're going to the tomb. We're going to the cross. We're going into the hole of darkness. Jesus isn't going to walk on the abyss. The abyss. He's going to dive in. Go deep to the bottom. Pull the plug. That's where we're headed. And John foreran it. John was the picture ahead of time so that we would not miss it, even though his disciples will continue to miss it. As I mentioned before, you, know, you can see if you're looking on page 841, he will go and feed 5,000 out in the wilderness like Moses. He will walk upon that water. Uh, let's look at verses 53 to 56 here, though, to close. So this is on page 842. So after he walks on the water, gets in the boat, kind of stills the sea again, 
verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Now, this is really cool, I think. How would they do that? How would they, Gennesaret, this is not Judea. This is not Israel. This is like the Decapolis. This is the Greek city-states. This is away from where any news about Jesus really should be, except, except there's that one guy who had had the legion of demons who wanted to go with Jesus back to Judea, but Jesus said, no, just go tell everyone about me, which is the opposite of what he's been saying, by the way. He's saying to everyone else, don't speak a word. This guy, he says, go tell everyone about me. He leaves for a little bit. He comes back and everyone knows who he is. And they come out again, right? Uh, uh, they ran about the whole region, verse 55 said, and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even, they might touch even the fringe of his garments. So we see again, there his clothing doing the work. He's not going to hide. The strong man trying to fight back, double-minded, wicked, and bound for the abyss, is going to threaten him with his own life. He's not going to hide. He's not going to stop. Even the grave, even the tomb will be unable to keep this man who is the son of God down. And he's going to astound you because he's not just doing this for himself. He's not just beating the devil because the devil's his enemy. He's beating the devil because the devil's your enemy. He's doing it for you. He's doing it so that right now, today, you can know that you're immortal already. No need to wait for death to start living forever. It's right now. You can know today that you will endure past this age of darkness in Jesus' glory. And what we will be has not yet been revealed like a flower from a seed. But it's going to continue to astound you as you learn that even sojourning through this veil of tears, as a veil of tears, is worth it when you have faith in the God who is your King, Jesus Christ. And in this Lenten season, then, we remember how hard it is to see that and how good it is that he just shines it forth anyway. And that you're here because that, that light has come to you. As many as touched it were made well, it said. Uh, skip back to verse 52 for a moment. Lenten thought here. It says, they did not understand. This is the apostles. It's right after he calms the storm again. They did not understand about the loaves, the food, the bread, but their hearts were hardened. I'm going to read it again, the main point. They did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. I mean, Lent is about remembering that as much as we know that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, our hearts have a tendency toward hardness. And the apostles in their, their blindness here, they're a picture of, of all of us. So that as we come forward to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ and declare that we are part of that resurrection which is to come, we come as those who have to know we're beggars. We're beggars. There's nothing we have that we did not receive. The feet to walk on, the air to breathe, the hope within to know that it's true. All of it from the start. Let there be, he says. And it is. 
the apostles' hardness, their confusion, the rise of the darkness against Jesus, all of this is why he came. It's why he came. In his holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.